So years ago, when I was a student in Dallas Seminary, I've told you that I, one of the jobs I had is I worked at the Lacoste store in North Park Mall. And I'll never forget on one particular day, it was my lunch break, and one of the places I would frequently go to for lunch was P.F. Chang's. At the time, P.F. Chang's, on their appetizer menu, they had these chicken lettuce wraps that were amazing, and even better, they were cheap for a really poor seminary student. And so I would go there all the time for lunch. And on this particular day, I went to P.F. Chang's, I ordered my chicken Asian wraps, lettuce wraps, and I got up to go to the bathroom. And in those days, I don't know if it's still this way, but in those days, P.F. Chang's was really darkly lit, dimly lit. You could barely see when you're walking down the hallway. It's like they didn't pay the light bill or something. And so I'm walking down this dark hallway to the bathroom and I run into what feels like a brick wall. And I look up and I make eye contact with Scotty Pippen. Um, if you don't know Scottie Pippen, he you know, played with Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls, one of the greatest basketball players of all time, truly. And I look up, I mean, he is a monster of a human being. Um, and so I literally ran into Scottie Pippen. He did not budge. I'm sure I bounced back just at the sheer force of the mass of this human being. It took me back. It was amazing, literally running into Scottie Pippen. You know, here in the States, we don't have royalty. We don't have a king, we don't have a queen. So really celebrities, athletes, things like that are as close as we come. I don't know if you've ever had an encounter with a celebrity or politician of some kind, but it, it really is kind of cool when you're around someone of that type of fame. And anytime you're around somebody with that big of a platform, that type of fame, that type of authority, naturally you just respond. You're kind of in awe of who this person is. And that's how it was for me on that day during my lunch break in the dark hallway of P.F. Chanks. Um, I was just taken back by Scottie Pippen and his size and his authority. He just stopped me in my tracks. And that's how it should be when we encounter somebody of that magnitude. And as we open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to see how people encounter and how they respond to this encounter with the authority, with the king of the Jews, with the one who is born truly to be king of kings and lord of lords. When Jesus' authority enters into his court, enters into the temple on this triumphal entry, we're going to see how the people respond. I want you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, and there on your outline, you can see three things we're going to look at here in this passage. Number one is we're going to see the preparation for the king. Before Jesus presents himself truly as the king of Israel, we're going to see the preparations that were made to get to that day. Some of these preparations come from prophecies from hundreds of years earlier, and we're going to take a look at a few of those. Number two on your outline, we're going to see the actual event itself, the presentation of Jesus as the king of the Jews on that specific day, riding in on the donkey into his court, into Jerusalem. But then number three on your outline, we're going to see what happens. And we're going to take a look at the purification from the king. Because when he enters his court on that day, it's truly a sad sight at what he sees. 
So we're going to take a look at the preparation, the presentation, and the purification for the king. Matthew chapter 21, grab your Bibles, and let me read for you, uh, starting in chapter 21, verse 1. Um, and, and, and as you're opening up to Matthew chapter 21, let me remind you kind of what Matthew is doing with his gospel. Uh, Matthew is writing his gospel, I believe, specifically to the Jewish people. So his primary audience is the Jewish people, and throughout the gospel of Matthew, Matthew has been laying out his case for the authority of Jesus. He's been demonstrating Jesus' authority over all sorts of things, ultimately building his case that Jesus truly is the long-awaited, prophesied Messiah and King of the nation of Israel. And when it comes to Matthew chapter 21, the question really is asked, is Jesus truly the king? And overwhelmingly, Matthew responds to that with the a yes. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, he's been laying out the preparations that are being made or the prophecies that are being fulfilled for Jesus in many ways building up to this very moment right here in Matthew chapter 21. And one of the biggest prophecies we're actually not going to see here in Matthew chapter 21, but I want to highlight it because it's truly remarkable. One of the prophecies or the preparations that are in place behind the scenes in Matthew chapter 21 that I want you to know about, you don't have to turn there, but in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, there's an incredible prophecy that's given. This is hundreds of years before Jesus. And Daniel is given an incredible prophecy. And as you know, Daniel, is, he's a prophet. He's writing during the time of the exile. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. Everything's bad. And God gives Daniel this prophecy. And he says, listen, Daniel. A decree is going to be issued to restore and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And from the moment that decree is issued... You can count forward 483 years. And after 483 years, the Messiah is going to be cut off. He's going to be rejected. This is Daniel chapter 9. It's an incredible prophecy going on in the background here of Matthew chapter 21. And do you want to know something absolutely remarkable? Is that we know when that decree was issued to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And if you count forward 483 years to the exact day, we arrive on this scene in Matthew chapter 21. By the way, if you want the proof of that, uh, Harold Honer, who many of you have probably heard of, he was a scholar at DTS, attended here uh, at Grace, he wrote a remarkable book giving all the math on that. I'll be honest with you, it will put you to sleep. Um, it's not the most riveting read in the world, but the, the data, the math adds up. It's truly remarkable. 483 years to the day from the issuing of the decree, we come to Matthew chapter 21. And with that, let's jump into the text. Matthew chapter 21, on the exact day that this prophecy of Daniel is being fulfilled, Matthew tells us, when they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And so 
as this prophecy in the background of Daniel chapter 9 is being fulfilled, on this very day, Jesus begins these preparations for this specific day. And he gives these instructions to his disciples and he says, listen, there's a village opposite you. I want you to go into that village. You're going to find a donkey and her colt. I want you to untie them and bring them to me. Now, this is kind of interesting, um, actually. I mean, and many people have been wondering, what in the world is going on here? Is this like holy stealing? I mean, what is Jesus doing here? Thought you weren't supposed to steal and things like that. We know that's a sin. That's bad. What is Jesus doing here? Um, And Some people have said, well, Jesus maybe talked to the man ahead of time. He said, hey, I'm going to send some disciples ahead of me and we're going to borrow your colt and things like that. But we don't know that. Um, But there was a cultural custom that was present in this time where a royal figure, a king, a dignitary, could claim a particular property for his own use. This was referred to as impressment, where a king, a royal figure, could impress, he could take possession of someone else's property for his use because he's the king. And that, I think, is really what Jesus is doing here. He's demonstrating here in this action that he really is the king. He's the one in charge, and he's taking possession of this donkey for his use. And notice what happens in verse 3. Jesus says, listen, as you're going into this village, as you're taking possession of this donkey and her colt, if anyone says to you, hey, what are you doing? You shall say to them, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. So Jesus makes these preparations, right? He's preparing his way for what ultimately is about to happen. Because notice what happens in the very next verse. Here we come to another major prophecy that's fulfilled here on this exact day. On the exact day that Daniel prophesied, we see another prophecy coming to fulfillment. Notice verse 4. This, Matthew says, took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Matthew tells us that this event of Jesus acquiring the the donkey and the colt, riding into Jerusalem, this happens, this takes place to fulfill what was spoken of through the prophet. This is Zechariah 9.9. About 500 years before this very event, Zechariah has given this prophet, Behold, your king is coming to you, mounted on a donkey. Again, take a step back and consider this for just a second. With just these two prophecies alone, and there's many others, but with these two prophecies alone, you would know the day the Messiah was going to be riding in Jerusalem and the animal upon which he would ride. I mean, this alone is enough evidence, right? I mean, it's remarkable that even in just these two prophecies, If you were a religious leader, if you really knew your scripture, you could have seen this coming. By the way, there's a little bit of background information as well. Um, This type of scene of someone coming into Jerusalem and palm branches being waved and people singing out songs, this type of scene had actually happened before. About 200 years before this day, the triumphal entry of Jesus, there was a similar looking day 
And you can read about it in the book of First Maccabees. Now, uh, if you don't know First Maccabees, it's in the uh, apocryphal books. We don't consider them to be inspired, but they are informative. And uh, the background of the book of Maccabees, you've probably heard of the Maccabees. There were two brothers, Judas and Simon, and they were largely responsible for liberating the Jewish people from the Seleucids, a, a group of people who were uh, 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 controlling the nation of Israel, and, and they were really under oppression to them. And so these two brothers, the Maccabean boys, really were a part of liberating the Jewish people from them. And they were hailed as national heroes. And in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 13, let me read for you. It says, Simon, Simon Maccabeus, one of the brothers, Simon's men entered the citadel on the 23rd day of the second month in the year 171. He entered with utterances of praise, with palm branches, to the music of lyres and cymbals and lutes and hymns and songs. Why? Because a great enemy had been smashed and driven out of Israel, and he decreed that the day be observed annually with rejoicing. The reason this is important is because it helps explain why when Jesus came, many of them were expecting him to liberate them from the Romans. This helps explain why so many people were looking for Jesus, not necessarily to save them from their sin, but to save them from Roman oppression. This is why people looked to Jesus and they were expecting some kind of political or military deliverer. Because as this day with the Maccabees was celebrated annually, this would have kind of instilled within them those similar types of feelings. But Jesus, we know, is coming here not for a military triumph, but he's coming for a greater purpose, to save his people from their sin. More on that later. So here we see in Matthew chapter 21 that all of the preparations have been made Two prophecies, and I could have mentioned more, these preparations that were made through history to bring us to this very moment. I had another celebrity interaction back in 2006. As a student at Oklahoma State, the commencement speaker in 2006 was President George Bush. Uh, now today, he would probably be canceled and uninvited. But in 2006, this was a big deal for the President of the United States to come and be the commencement speaker at Oklahoma State. And so, as you would expect, for weeks ahead of time, preparations were being made for the arrival of the President. And I lived near the stadium where the commencement uh, was going to take place, where President Bush was going to speak. And uh, for weeks ahead of time, secret servicemen were scouring the area around the stadium, making sure that every nook and cranny, every little dark corner was covered and taken care of so that when the event took place, everything went according to plan. Everything was as it should have been. And here in Matthew chapter 21, we see that for hundreds of years now, in prophecies being fulfilled, preparations are being made for the king's arrival. But everything doesn't go according to plan. There's no excuse for not seeing it coming. But let's take a look at what happened next. Let's look at number two on your outline, the presentation of the king. Matthew chapter 21 Verse 8 says, Most of the crowd 
spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Let's pause right here and keep in mind as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on this donkey, this scene is taking place, people waving palm branches and singing songs. And again, keep in mind, all of this is happening around Passover, right? We talked about Passover last week. There's thousands of people in Jerusalem during this time. Messianic expectation is super high. There's a ton of excitement. And again, you have Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the exact day that was prophesied, on the exact animal that was prophesied. And we see how the people respond. Notice verse 9. The crowds going ahead of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Take a look at the words and the actions of the people as they see this event transpiring before their eyes. Notice Matthew tells us that the crowds, they're going ahead of him and following behind him. In other words, they're surrounding him. There's a a real scene emerging here as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It says the crowds there, they're laying their coats in the road, which is a sign of submission. They're waving palm branches, which is a symbol of their salvation. And they're crying out, Hosanna, which means saves us, to the son of David, a messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Clearly a scene is developing here, right? There's tons of excitement as Jesus enters in. Now, As we keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew... The same word Matthew uses here for crowds, later they're going to become quite fickle. And we don't know if it's the exact same people, but Matthew is showing us that these crowds, these people who are singing his praises now, will be the very same ones who later continue to shout, crucify him. Again, maybe not the exact same people, but the scene is meant to be in contrast. Notice verses 10 and 11, the city itself is stirred. They're wondering, who is this? And they at least, verse 11, recognize that Jesus is a prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. In other words, what I want you to see is there's a mixture of responses here. I think some people get it. Others are kind of still trying to figure it out. And as we'll see later, the religious leaders are ultimately going to reject it. It's an incredible scene of of Jesus riding in on the donkey. And one of my favorite stories, illustrations of all time, this picture of Jesus riding in on a donkey comes from Corey Ten Boom. Uh, Corey Ten Boom, uh, if you've not read The Hiding Place or seen the movie, you you certainly should. Um, And she was once asked at the height of her career, the height of her fame, she said, somebody asked her, how do you deal with the amount of fame, the attention that you receive with your platform, your celebrity status? And she said this, I love it. She said, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey, and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think that for one moment it even entered the head of that donkey that any of it was for him? She said, if I can be the donkey on which Jesus Christ rides in his glory, I give him all the praise and all the glory. I love that statement. 
Um, doesn't really have anything necessarily to do with the text here, but it's just a great sentiment, I think, of, of where our hearts should be. Uh, that whatever platform, whatever celebrity status any of us have, like Corey Ten Boom reminds us, it's, it's meant to ultimately be for him. If we can just be the donkey upon which he rides in his glory, that's enough. Because truly it's all for him anyway. Well, back in 2010, I had another celebrity encounter. Um, I was headed to Hungary to teach at a Bible college there and uh, Han and I went to London on the way there and Rome on the way back. And I think I told you months ago that in our time in Rome, I really had one major goal that I wanted to do. I wanted to go and see the Sistine Chapel. And so Han and I, we go over to the Vatican and we wait in line to get into the building and to go see the Sistine Chapel. We enter into uh, the, the main building and we're told, unfortunately, that on that day, the Sistine Chapel was closed. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. I waited in line for hours and the Sistine Chapel is closed. And so I think a day or two later, we went back because we're gluttons for punishment. And so we went back to the Vatican. We, and this time, there were people everywhere. I've never seen so many people. This was pre-pandemic. And even then, I was kind of thinking, man, I need like six feet of space around me. There are too many people here. And suddenly, we're standing in line. And everybody turns and starts pointing and shouting, Papa, Papa, Papa. And a window opens up and the Pope emerges from the window. It was incredible. Now, as Protestants, Han and I really didn't care. We were not there to see the Pope. We were there to see the Sistine Chapel. And after some time, because of all the people, we had to leave disappointed yet again. I still have not seen the Sistine Chapel. Um, but my point is, it was the exact same events Tons of people there and different responses, right? Some were super elated and excited to see the Pope. Others left disappointed. And it's the same type of scene we see here in Matthew chapter 21. Jesus presents himself as the long-awaited and prophesied King and Messiah, and we have various responses here in the text. But what happens next is really what I want you to see. Number three on your outline, when the king enters into his court, what does he find? How does he respond? Let's take a look at the text. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 12. When Jesus enters his court, what does he find? Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple, Matthew 21, 12, and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Let's pause right there. So again, think about this. Here Jesus is, presenting himself as the king of Israel on the exact day prophesied, on the exact animal prophesied, he enters into his court, and rather than finding a big welcoming committee and a banner that says, welcome Messiah, this is what he finds. And clearly, verse 12, Jesus is upset. He enters into the temple, this place that's devoted for worship, and he drives out those who are buying and selling at the temple. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who are selling doves. What's going on here? Some scholars have suggested that as the currency rate was, you know, currency was being exchanged, perhaps people there were charging an exorbitant amount, uh, crazy rates for the change of currency. Perhaps that's going on. 
But I think the real reason, the primary reason Jesus is so upset, we see actually in the next verse. Notice how Jesus responds as he overturns the tables of the money changers and those who are selling doves there. Notice his response in verse 13. He says to them, it is written, my house, the temple, shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Here Jesus is quoting Isaiah chapter 56. What you need to understand is that when you entered into the temple complex, the first area that you would step into was called the court of the Gentiles or the court of the nations. And in Isaiah 56, we see that this area was supposed to be set aside uh, for prayer of the nation, for the nations, the Gentiles to come and to worship the one true God. This was the only area in the entire temple that the Gentiles were allowed to go. And yet on this day, remember it's Passover, so there's thousands upon thousands of people. On this day, what has happened is that the people selling animals for sacrifice, the people exchanging currency, they have moved into the court of Gentiles, this area dedicated for prayer and for worship, for Gentiles to uh, worship the one true God has really become a cacophony of chaos of like a flea market scene. And that, I think, is why Jesus is so upset. Because of the drowning out, the noise of the money changers and the animals, the, the, the sound of the people's prayers are being drowned out. The Gentiles, the one place they're allowed to go, it's being drowned out. So Jesus, in overturning the tables of the money changers and driving these people out, he's really purifying the temple and he's trying to reinstate it as a place of true worship like it was designed to be. And notice the next verse, it gets even worse because in verse 14, Matthew tells us the blind, the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now the Gentiles, they had an area of the temple and they weren't allowed to go any further. And similarly, the blind and the lame, they only had so much access there in the temple. Because of their physical condition, they weren't allowed to go too far into the temple complex. And so Jesus does a remarkable thing here. He heals them. And in doing so, I believe he opens up the access that otherwise was restricted for them as worshipers. So in these two acts, the overturning of the table and the healing of the blind and the lame, I think Jesus is opening up the access of worship. By the way, back in Matthew chapter 11, there's a really strange conversation that takes place by proxy between John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist is in prison and uh, he sends word to Jesus and he says, listen, are you really the Messiah, the long-awaited one, or should we wait for somebody else? Should we look for somebody else? And remember, Jesus sends word back to John the Baptist and he says, listen, tell John the Baptist that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And here in Matthew 21, what does Jesus do? He heals the lame. He gives sight to the blind. He's opening up access to God himself. This is just a foreshadowing, a picture of the bigger goal that Jesus has in mind here. Because the truth of the gospel is, the bad news, is none of us deserve access to God. The Bible is very clear that because of our sin, none of us deserves open access to a holy God. 
And yet what Jesus does here and ultimately what he will do on the cross is that by laying down his life, he gives to us freely, those of us who have no access, who deserve no access, he gives us complete and open access to a holy God through him. And that's really what we're remembering this week. That's what we should remember every week. That it's only through the cross of Jesus, it's only through his death and resurrection that any of us has a chance. And it's because of him that we can rest in the forgiveness, the redemption, the grace, the mercy and love of Christ. For those of you in this room, for those of you watching online, if you've never really considered the gospel, if you've never really considered who Jesus is and what his death and resurrection offers to you freely as a gift, I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to consider that now. You have no chance apart from him, no access, but because of him, you're redeemed, you're forgiven, you're reconciled to a holy God. Well, sadly, take a look at what happens next in verses 15 and 16. As Jesus is doing these remarkable things, notice the response of the religious leaders. Verse 15 of Matthew 21 says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, notice they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. The religious leaders are indignant, a word that means they're, they're really furying in anger. Their anger is stirring inside of them. They cannot believe what they're seeing. They cannot believe what they're hearing. They cannot believe that Jesus would accept this praise for himself. Their question implies that they expect Jesus to shut these children up. In the other gospels, we see Jesus even says, listen, out of stones, I can get praise for myself. It's an amazing scene. All of the preparations have been made going back hundreds of years for the presentation of the king. And yet when he comes into his court, what does he find? From the religious leaders, it's not worship. It's dead religion. So notice how Jesus responds in verse 17. Matthew tells us he left them. He departed and went out from the city to Bethany. And he spent the night there. And if you were to keep reading in the Gospel of Matthew, you see Jesus curses the fig tree, which is a symbol, a picture of his judgment over the nation because they have rejected the one who came to present himself as the king of Israel on the day, on the animal. All of the preparations had been made. Don't miss the irony here of all the people who should have seen him coming. The religious leaders not only missed it, but even opposed and ultimately reject him. Despite all the preparations, despite the presentation, Jesus here, the king, presents himself into his court. And when he comes, he finds it lacking. So he purifies it. 
He overturns the tables. He opens up access to those who otherwise were excluded. As I take a step back and look at Matthew chapter 21 and ask the question, okay, how does this passage apply to us? I'm reminded of a great line in a book by Mike Spiegel. Mike Spiegel is a church history professor at Dallas Seminary. Um, and one of the questions he asks in the book is, if the reformers or the early church fathers showed up to your church, would they worship or would they run? And based on this text, I'm going to one-up Mike Spiegel and ask the question, if Jesus showed up to your church, would he be worshipped? Or like in the text here, would he withdraw? Would he see what's going on and say, listen, there's a lot of religion, there's a lot of activity, but it misses the point. It misses the king. To bring that a little bit closer to home, and I know this is convicting, it's convicting to me too. Uh, This week, we're all going to be making preparations for Easter. And it's so easy to get lost in the chaos of Easter preparations and maybe the family that's coming in, the meal planning that we have to do, all the events and things like that. And and listen, I'm not anti-fun, I'm not anti-Easter egg, have Easter egg hunts, we will too. This isn't that message, okay? Um, But my conviction, based on what I'm seeing here, is we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. We've got to remember what this week ultimately is all about in the first place. Let's not get lost in the cacophony of chaos and miss the one we're made to worship. So that's my encouragement, my conviction uh, for you and for myself. And so there on your outline, I've given you some application questions to consider. But my, my one thing for you this week, my invitation for you as a way of kind of working against the cultural chaos And the noise of this week, I want to invite you to join us either in person or online for our Holy Week services. Every day at noon, we're going to have a 30-minute service just as a reminder of what this week is about. As kind of a checkpoint for each and every one of us um, to reflect on Jesus' passion Monday through Friday at noon here at Grace. So I'm going to invite you to come or to tune in online. Because it's so easy for us to miss the point. When we're confronted with the reality of the king, of who Jesus is, let's not miss it. Scotty Pippen, George Bush, the Pope, they all have a measure of authority, but they all pale in comparison to the authority of the one we see here. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, let's worship, let's make preparations for him this week. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Um, for the one who is born king of the Jews, for the one who is born to lay down his life so that we may live. Thank you for our king, our savior. Father, thank you that through him you have freely given us access, that we who were once cut off and estranged have been brought near through the blood of Christ. God, I do pray that this week we could all have fun, that we could visit family and friends and have Easter egg hunts and have great meals and celebrate together. But I pray that the center of everything we do would point to this moment, to the reality of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, the Messiah, our King. 
And I pray that everything we do would ultimately remind us of him. God, I ask this for myself. I ask it for each one here. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.